Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 36. And I'm going to cover a topic today that uh, I often get asked about. That is, what are the best books on the Constitution? Well, of course, I would respond, my book on the Constitution, The Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, or Kevin Gutzman's The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. Those are two very good commentaries on the document um, written from the modern perspective, right? But um, uh, people are usually asking that question about older commentaries on the Constitution. And they're aware of, say, Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution. Uh, Maybe some of the, of course, they've read the Federalist essays. Um, So they're looking for something else. They're saying, all right, I've I've read the the Federalist papers. Uh, And and that is problematic uh, because everyone thinks that if you read the Federalist papers, well, you know the Constitution because, of course, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay wrote the Federalist Papers, and so that's it. I mean, that is the definitive source on the meaning of the Constitution, original intent. All you got to do is read that, and you know it very well. Or maybe they've read some Supreme Court decisions. Uh, Maybe they've looked into what John Marshall had to say about the Constitution. Uh, Again, this is is very problematic because uh, what you're getting when you read Story or Marshall, you're basically reading Alexander Hamilton and his machinations on what the Constitution meant after he was already in office as Secretary of the Treasury. Though, uh, if you look at what Hamilton said about the Constitution or what he wanted from a Constitution in Philadelphia, it's drastically different from what he argued the Constitution would mean and do uh, after it was uh, signed and then going through ratification uh, in New York. So, which Hamilton do you believe? And um, I will announce it here. I've, I'm working on a book on Hamilton right now. Uh, it should be out in September of next year, and it will get into this particular issue. Uh, and the tentative title is How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So um, it, it should be a lot of fun when it's published. Uh, it's going to attack Hamilton, also John Marshall, Joseph Story, and Hugo Black. But that said, people are looking for an analysis of the Constitution, a commentary on the Constitution, closer to the ratification of the document from maybe someone from the founding generation or shortly thereafter. So I'm actually going to talk about three today, two which are from members of the founding generation and one from the next generation of men. Uh, and so I think if you read these three commentaries, you, you won't go wrong. And of course, they're going to come from an originalist position. Oftentimes, people say this is the Jeffersonian position. 
And that's because Jefferson is often attached to the position that when the Constitution was ratified, it said what it meant, and you have to look at the ratifying debates to, to gather meaning. You can't just go out and uh, look at what the Congress said it meant or the Supreme Court said it meant later on. Essentially, he's taking an originalist position. Uh, people like John Randolph of Roanoke took this position. All the old Republicans, people like Nathaniel Macon, one of the individuals who wrote one of these commentaries was considered part of that old Republican tradition. This was the Virginia position, essentially. And, and all of these people that I'm going to talk about were from Virginia. So if you want to look for original meaning, you got to go back to Virginia. And even when you move forward in time, as we start looking at the sectional conflict, you know, South Carolinians, John C. Calhoun among them, were saying, look, if Virginia would just lead again, we would be fine. Because when Virginia led, when Virginia led the federal government, uh, that federal government was often in check. Not always. And Virginia could not always block things that uh, the uh, general government was doing that were unconstitutional, but they did a pretty good job of it. Oftentimes, people also ask me, you know, when did the Constitution die? And my answer is simply 1789. And that's because as you get to that first Congress, and particularly with the Judiciary Act of 1789, that's when things went off the rails, because what that Judiciary Act allowed the general government or the people to do of the states is to appeal... Uh, state laws directly to federal courts. And if you look at the ratification debates, that's something that the founding generation were very clear on in those ratification conventions, is that state courts would not be trumped by federal courts. So the great fear was that state laws would be somehow invalidated by the federal court system. And eventually that's what happened over time. That, that was the great turning point and interpretation of the Constitution, when state court decisions could be uh, invalidated by the federal courts, or state law could be invalidated by federal courts. Look at all the state laws out there that are often invalidated by federal courts, and the, the federal court system will say, well, that law is unconstitutional. Well, how so? Does it violate Article One, Section 10? No. Uh, and that's really the only area in which uh, anyone considered a state law up for review. In fact, having a federal negative on state law was expressly rejected at the Philadelphia Convention. So was the Bank of the United States and all kinds of other things. But uh, that's that's another another story entirely. If you want uh, if you want to um, take a class on the Constitution, you should go out and join uh, LearnTrueHistory.com. And uh, you can have a class on the Constitution by yours truly, also Kevin Goodsman. So, and you get other great stuff too. History, economics, it's all out there. So go to learntruehistory.com and, and get that. But let's talk about these three books. So I've set this up. What we're going to look at are three particular essays. And I'm going to, all of them are available for free online because they're older. They're in public domain. So uh, this, is, this is a wonderful opportunity to get these three commentaries and not have to pay a dime for them. So first and foremost, I'm going to go in order in terms of publication date. So the first was written by St. George Tucker, and the title of it is View of the Constitution of the United States. Now, this particular essay has been republished by Liberty Fund with Clyde Wilson writing the introduction. It came out in the, uh, in the late 90s. And you can go get it on, uh, and I'll put a link to it out there in the show notes. You know, Liberty Fund 
has the has a free version of it online. You can buy it in, in uh, paperback form through Amazon if you wanted a hard copy, and that's that's what I have. But oftentimes people like to get these online. So uh, let me explain who St. George Tucker was. The Tucker family is actually one of the more interesting families in American history. Uh, St. George Tucker was a, a jurist. Um, he wrote a updated version of Blackstone's Commentaries, and Blackstone's commentaries on, on English law were considered to be the definitive source for understanding the common law and uh, the, the British unwritten constitution. And so that became the basis of um, how people would look at English liberties in America. And so Tucker updated that, uh, and then he produced this first commentary on the Constitution after ratification. So he, he wrote this just a few short years after the Constitution was ratified, and um, it was published in the early 19th century. And what's interesting about this particular essay on the Constitution is he essentially outlines the compact fact of the Constitution, meaning that the compact, or the Constitution is a compact, as he says, and I'm going to quote him, the Constitution of the United States of America, then, is an original, written, federal, and social compact, freely, voluntarily, and solemnly entered into by the several states of North America, and ratified by the people thereof, respectively, whereby the several states and the people thereof, respectively, have bound themselves to each other and to the federal government of the United States, and by which the federal government is bound to the several states and to every citizen of the United States. Now, that's a whole lot of 18th century language saying, look, this, this Constitution is a compact between the people of the states, or the states entering into a compact. It's a compact fact. And that's very important. He goes on to say, it is a federal compact. Several sovereign and independent states may unite themselves together by a perpetual confederacy without each ceasing to be a perfect state. They will together form a federal republic. So language matters. And actually the next, the next uh, commentary I'm going to discuss actually has in the, at the beginning of the, of the commentary gets into that. Language matters. And so very clearly there, he says, we, the United States is a federal republic. A federal republic. Not a republic, but a federal republic. And when people discuss the United States, they say, well, re the United States is a republic. No, the United States are a federal republic. People often use the plural form of the United States all the way up till the 1860s. And then after that, we start seeing the United States is. Now, it's not to say that the founding generation didn't talk about the American nation. They didn't look, some, some people in particular looked at the general government as a consolidated government. And essentially, that's what all three of these commentaries attack. That position, that somehow, through the Constitution, the United States was consolidated into a singular republic, a national government. That idea was expressly rejected in Philadelphia when the Constitution was written. And then it was expressly rejected in the ratifying conventions when the Constitution was ratified in 1787 and 1788. 
So when you have that foundation, that creates a different view of the United States government and the powers of that government vis-a-vis the states and vis-a-vis the people of the states. When that idea of, you know, we the people of the, of the United States, the original preamble was we the people of the states of, and it listed all the states. And the preamble also clearly states that this is a constitution for the United States of America, not of the United States of America, but for the United States of America. For implies a plural, of implies a singular. It's for the United States of America. So that's what Tucker is getting into. Um, and he, he goes through all the powers of the government, the powers of the presidency, the powers of the Congress, the powers of the court system. And you're looking at a very limited government analysis of the Constitution because he says essentially this is what was ratified by the people of the states in 1787 and 1788, particularly in Virginia. That, of course, is the Constitution we should follow, not the one that the Supreme Court has twisted, the one that Hamilton twisted. You know, if you look at John Marshall, he's essentially channeling Alexander Hamilton's arguments uh, that Hamilton made in favor of, say, the Bank of the United States or his funding system. And so uh, Marshall is just codifying that through a Supreme Court decision. But Tucker, very clearly, early on, refutes all the machinations of the nationalists. And so this is why it is a, an important and pivotal commentary on the Constitution because it was the first. And we should read this one. Now, it's, it's, again, it's 18th century language, so you're going to have to get through that. But we should read this commentary in order to understand what a member of the founding generation, a very important member of the founding generation, said about the Constitution. All right, so you go from Tucker to the next in the list. And again, I'm not going through these in specific detail because this is a 30-minute you know, podcast or so. We could, we could have entire courses on these, particular, uh, on these particular essays. The second is John Taylor of Caroline's New Views of the Constitution of the United States. This was published in 1823. Now, John Taylor is also a member of the founding generation. He was the pamphleteer of the Jeffersonian tradition, and he wrote a number of books, number of essays, from a quote-unquote Jeffersonian position. So you have uh, this particular book, which was written to expressly refute John Adams' work on the Constitution, or on constitutions. But he also wrote a book of political economy, uh, Eritur, which is about agriculture, but also political economy. Uh, he wrote a book on the tariff of the United States entitled Tyranny Unmasked. Um, so he was a, an extensive writer, served a little time in the United States Senate, served a little time in Virginia, in the government of Virginia. Um, in fact, it's, Taylor had one of the more interesting exchanges in the early Congresses uh, when he was a member of the United States Senate. He was pulled aside by two other members of the founding generation, uh, Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth. And 
King and Ellsworth proceeded to essentially ask Taylor if he would support Northern Secession. Because this, this was in 1794. 1794, five years after the Constitution has been ratified, King and Ellsworth were already seeing that it wasn't going to work. That the South was going to continually block what the North wanted to do. And so they were asking Taylor, hey look, what, would you support it if the North was out of the Union? And I find that of course, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, talk, when they talk about secession, they think that it was just magically created in 1860 and 61, but secession was openly discussed as early as 1794. And of course, one of the reasons why people were arguing for the Constitution in 1787 and 1788 is that, is that because secession was openly discussed then, that there was a discussion of having multiple confederacies on, on the North American continent that the incompatible things were the North and the South. They were never going to see eye to eye on a variety of issues, and so they might as well just part ways then. So Taylor's pulled aside, and he wrote about this, and it was published years later in a letter that he, he explained this, what had happened. So the, the first discussion of secession was in the North. So Taylor was shocked by it then, but this particular book, uh, New Views on the uh, I'm sorry, of the Constitution of the United States, gets into several important subjects. First, he discusses the meaning of certain primary words. That's, that's the first section of, of this particular commentary. And he essentially sets up that it's a union of states. That consolidation of the general government was never contemplated by the ratifiers of the Constitution. It was contemplated by members of the Philadelphia Convention, and they were interested in creating a national government. He brings up several members of that Philadelphia Convention who made this point clear. We want to eliminate the states, but that is not the Constitution that was finally signed and then ratified. So what's happened is you've had, uh, since the Constitution was ratified, in that period between 1788 and 1823, you've had a push towards consolidation. And he says this is false. We don't have a national government. We don't have a consolidated government. We have a federal republic, the same exact thing that St. George Tucker had said in his view of the Constitution of the United States. And what's interesting about uh, Taylor's book, his commentary, is that he uses Yates, no, Robert Yates's notes from the Philadelphia Convention. Now, this is important because Madison had not yet published his notes. They would not come out for another decade. Uh, so nobody knew exactly what Madison had written about the Philadelphia Convention, but they had Robert Yates's notes of the Philadelphia Convention. And in fact, in many ways, Yates's notes are superior now, you can get Yeats's notes if you get Max Ferrand's uh, multi-volume collection of the documents of the Constitution. It is entitled, The Records of the Federal Convention. And um, it is a wonderful resource because it not only includes records of the Federal Convention of 1787, Max Ferrand. It not only includes... Uh, Madison's notes, but also Yates's notes, and uh, so it's it's a very it's a valuable resource. You can get Eliot's debates, which are pretty good. It has 
Madison's notes in there, and then, of course, it has the ratifying debates. Those are important. Um, but Max Ferran does a very good job with the Philadelphia Convention itself. So Taylor is using Yates's notes to explain what the Constitution meant, what some people wanted, and then what they got. That's an important distinction to make. When you have someone like Alexander Hamilton standing up and saying, look, the states are going to become corporations. That's what he wants. Hamilton wanted the states to be reduced to the, to the status of a corporation. And in the New York ratifying convention, he was called to task on this. And they actually, Yates's notes were actually brought out then. Hey, what did you say about that? John Lansing of New York said, um, you know, Hamilton, if I recall correctly, in, in the Philadelphia Convention, you said that you wanted to reduce the states to corporations, and Hamilton denied it. No, I never said that. And Lansing said, well, yes, you did. And these two men almost fought a duel over that. And I, again, I, I detailed this debate in my forthcoming book on Hamilton. But uh, it's important to note that Yates clearly says and clearly shows that the Constitution, which was finally signed in September 1787, was not the Constitution that was originally debated when Madison, through Randolph, presented the Virginia Plan. And Pinckney uh, of South Carolina wanted a negative on state laws. That's not what we got, though. And so what, what Taylor does is very well is go through what certain words mean, and then the commentaries on what the Constitution was going to mean when it was at Philadelphia, he goes through several of the uh, Federalist essays, um, and then he refutes directly the idea that the Constitution created a consolidated or national government. And so if you want a very good analysis of what the Constitution actually means from an original position, as ratified, go read John Taylor of Caroline. Now, again, you're going to have to get through 19th century language. Sometimes Taylor is often viewed as being too dense to read. I don't find it's bad. Uh, in fact, I think Tucker's a little more dense than Taylor. But um, it's not something you're going to sit down and read in a matter of you know a day. Uh, you're going to have to chew this book. And same thing with, with Tucker. You're going to have to chew the words. Finally, in this uh, great triumvirate of uh, commentaries on the Constitution, we have Abel Upshur's A Brief Inquiry into the True Nature and Character of Our Federal Government. And this is a direct refutation of Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. So what had happened? You had Tucker produce his commentary, and then you had uh, John Adams write a, a book on uh, constitutions, and Taylor goes after that in 1823. And then you had Joseph Story come out with his commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. This was published in 1833. So right about the time that nullification was, uh, the nullification quote-unquote crisis had reached its uh, high point, and people were talking about what this Constitution actually meant. And Story, being a nationalist, comes out with this review or commentary of the Constitution. And it has become very much standard 
in terms of people looking for an original understanding of the Constitution. But story fabricates things in this particular book. So Upshur takes him to task. Now, Abel Upshur was also from Virginia. Um, he uh, was a lawyer. Uh, he was judge of the General Court of Virginia. And then he became Secretary of the Navy and then later uh, Secretary of State, where he was killed on board uh, the ship Princeton and a, when a gun exploded in 1844. So he had written this particular book attacking Joseph Story's commentaries not long after Story had written them, but uh, it just laid aside for a time. He, Upshur also, incidentally, wrote several good essays uh, defending nullification. So oftentimes people look at Upshur and say, well, this guy is just a, he's just an old South, uh, you know, strict constructionist. So you're getting a, a biased view. Story is is unbiased. Story was a was an objective judge uh, on the on the Supreme Court. Uh, Upshur, uh, plus you know, people will often say you know Upshur's tainted because he was a pro-slavery ideologue, and he was that. I mean, uh, Upshur did support slavery, but his position on on the Constitution is bulletproof. I mean, when you look at the founding generation and what they said the Constitution would mean, what the ratifying convention said the Constitution would mean, this is exactly what Story is doing in his inquiry into the true nature and character of our federal government. So one of the things he does very well, so does Taylor, they attack this idea that somehow the Constitution was the creation of one people. Taylor gets into that and, and takes that down. In fact, he has one of my favorite lines ever when he says, you know, saying that the United States, and I'm going to paraphrase, saying that the United States government uh, is uh, created by the people or that there's an American people is like saying there's a utopia for utopians. It simply doesn't exist. There's no people. There's no American people. That The one people idea doesn't exist. Just like utopia for utopians, it doesn't exist. And so Upshur gets into that too. One of the things he does, one of the things that uh, Joseph Story does, is essentially say that the United States government predated the states. And Upshur very clearly says that's, that's not the case. Uh, this is one of the ingenious arguments of the nationalists. Look, uh, the, the general government came before the states because we had a Congress before we had states. We were still colonies, and then we had a Congress, and then we had states. Well, this is simply not true. Uh, there wasn't a one colony. It wasn't the colony of the United States. There were the colonies of the United States, and each one had its own colonial charter. In fact, um, if you look at the crisis leading up to the American War for Independence, one of the things that people complained about, the British, sub, the, 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 those, the Tories, the Loyalists, one of the things they complained about, the royal governors, was that the colonies were, were too different. They needed to consolidate the colonies 
and bring them under more a centralized control. They were far too different. And that was true. Each one of these colonies was essentially independent of the other. And they had their own legislatures. They had their own views on government within their colonial borders. And that American War for Independence was a constitutional crisis. And what you really what, what they're arguing for is that what they wanted was a federal system where the, the crown in London could regulate trade and then defend the colonies, but all other subjects were left to the colonies themselves. And, of course, they weren't represented in Parliament, so that was one of the big rubs. But all other things, you know, internal taxation, internal trade, all of these things were left to the colonies themselves. This was, they were advocating for a federal system, and essentially that's what we were supposed to get through the Articles of Confederation and then later the United States Constitution or the Constitution for the United States. So Upshur attacks this idea, and, and of course, you know, Lincoln made a great political discovery this way in, in 1861. Hey, uh, look what I discovered, that uh, the Union predated the states. But very clearly, as Taylor uh, outlines, as Upshur outlines, as Tucker outlines, but uh, Taylor and, and uh, Upshur do it much better, is that, look, when you have the Declaration of Independence, it says that we have free and independent states. Each state was recognized individually. Each state was a free and independent state, and as such, they ratified the, the Constitution, creating a compact between the people of the states or the states themselves. It's a compact fact, not a compact theory, and I think that's one thing we need to continually emphasize. People say, well, you're articulating the, uh, the compact theory of the uh, Constitution. Uh, that's just a theory. Uh, you know, it's uh, clearly uh, refuted by great eminent scholars like uh, John Marshall and uh, uh, Joseph Story and all the great nationalists in, uh, in American history. They have clearly, clearly uh, refuted the idea that we have a compact uh, between states. It's actually a compact between the people of, of the United States in, in, in aggregate. aggregate. It's, uh, so the states are irrelevant. Uh, as as uh, Hamilton uh, uh, clearly said, uh, they're, they're, they're just corporations. Uh, this is simply not true. If you look at the history, the, the history is on our side. <laughs> it, it's all on our side. So Upshur takes story to task for this. Now, and he says, tested by this definition, the people of the American colonies were, in no conceivable sense, one people. He says, these colonial governments were clothed with the sovereign power of making laws and of, and of enforcing obedience to them from their own people. The people of one colony owed no allegiance to the government of any other colony and were not bound by its laws. The colonies had no common legislature, no common treasury, no common military power, and no common judiciary. The people of one colony were not liable to pay taxes to any other colony, nor to bear arms in its defense. They had no right to vote in its elections, nor influence, no influence nor control in its municipal government, no interest in its municipal institutions. 
There were no prescribed form by which the colonies could act together for any purpose whatever. They were not known as one people in any function of government. Although they were all alike dependencies of the British crown, yet even in the action of the parent country in regard to them, they were recognized as separate and distinct. So he gets into this idea that you know somehow the union was there before the colony, before you know these distinct governments, and, and he says this is this is completely false. So, if you want to refute the nationalist narrative, and you know, pay attention to. Uh, what people say. I mean, on, in both parties now, we have a, we have been infused with nationalist rhetoric. Well, you know, this is the American nation. I, you know, it's one nation. Completely false. It never has been one nation. We've never had an an, an American nation. A nation, in its strict definition of the word, does not exist in North America. We see it all the time. This is why people are so angry because we have. 50 plus 1 percent, basically, you know, a bare majority legislating for a, for a large minority. And that large minority is not being represented. We have a top-down approach to government created by a nationalist consolidated mentality that's creating friction. What needs to happen is that we need to revisit this idea of federalism because the states could better handle the domestic affairs of the individuals there. You can move to a state that suits your needs. If you want to live in a socialist utopia, move to California or Massachusetts. If you don't, don't live there. It's that simple. Go live somewhere else. Do something else. I mean, this is, this is the idea of freedom of association and the ability to move to a state that best suits your interests and your views on government and society. And that's what a federal compact can do. That's why the Constitution was designed to handle two things, commerce and defense. And if you look at the enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8, if you look at the powers denied to the states in Article 1, Section 10, what you get clearly is that those are the two things they were talking about, commerce and defense. And by commerce, they didn't mean regulating uh, how you sneezed in your state if you, if you, uh, you know, used a tissue that could regulate that tissue because maybe it was transferred from one state to another. That's not what they meant. They meant simply making North America a free trade zone between states. So you wouldn't have Maryland, Virginia passing tariffs against each other, which you did have at one point before the Constitution was ratified. That was the point. The general welfare of the Union was commerce and defense, not the uh, livelihoods of the people within those states, meaning they're going to give you a job or a place to live or a phone or some other ridiculous thing that people have come up with. That's not the general welfare. The general welfare of the union, meaning that it was prosperous. So all the evidence is on the side of the quote-unquote strict constructionists. All the evidence, whether it's from the Philadelphia Convention, the ratifying conventions, these early commentaries, 
The only one that refuted this idea was Joseph Stories. And, and conservatives today will run around telling you that, oh, Joseph Stories, commentaries in the Constitution, best thing ever written. It's just, it's, it's laughable. Uh, and of course, maybe they've read the Federalist. I've read, I've, I've seen this several times, people arguing with me. I've read every word of the Federalist essays. I know the Constitution. And because I've read those Federalist essays, I've read it. I know it. Believe me, I am an expert. And it's quite fun to uh, then bring up the other commentaries on the Constitution, which in many cases, particularly at the time the Constitution was going through ratification that were written, which were better. So it's always fun to bring those up. Because some and many of these uh, other Federalist essays written by other prominent Americans at the time, they refute some of the things the Federalist essays said. And of course, you look at the ratifying debates, they, they, uh, they refute some of the things in, that Hamilton in particular said in the Federalist essays. He had a much more optimistic view of, of federal power than many of the people who are rat- arguing for ratification. So I'm going to link to these three, again, for free. You can get all these commentaries on the Constitution for free. This is a very brief, cursory outline saying you should read these three books on the Constitution. It'll do you well in your arguments with idiots. So um, go out there and get them for free online. Also, as I said, I recommend uh, Kevin Goodsman's Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. It's very good. Uh, my book on the Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. Uh, Emmy Bradford's Original Intent. Uh, that's uh, Original Intentions, I should say. That's a very good book. Um, so there's a lot of books out there that are good. Uh, but, you know, avoid, avoid Story and avoid Marshall and avoid Hamilton at all costs for understanding the Constitution. If you can do that, I mean, look, you can win the argument. It's not hard. Uh, it's not really hard to do at all. The, the evidence is on our side, but we have to be educated in this particular way. You have to come up with good arguments to, to defend your position. And if you read these books, you'll have all the ammunition you need to win the day. Also, check out LearnTrueHistory.com. That's T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. And uh, you can sign up for less than 5 bucks a month. You can sign up for, uh, you get uh, tons of classes, but there is one there on the Constitution that um, myself and, and Kevin Goodsman produced. So get out there and do that. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClain Show.